The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Hello and welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Today we're going to be talking about a certain type of renewable energy that doesn't get as much attention as, say, solar and wind. We're going to be talking about geothermal energy. And we have um, Carl Galwell on today. He's been on with us before to kind of give us the geothermal 101 talk. But today we're going to dig into more specifics because his organization, the Geothermal Energy Association, also known as the GEA, has an upcoming national summit. So we're going to be talking about some of the things that they have on the docket for that summit. We'll be talking about some of the discussions they'll be having and what's new in terms of current events with geothermal. So welcome back to Go Green Radio, Carl. I'm so glad to have you on. Welcome, Joan. Glad to be here. Well, uh, I, I have to tell our listeners, I, I actually had a great time last year. I got to come to your summit for a day and take a bus tour to actually see geothermal plants in action, and I had a great time. Um, this year, your fourth annual summit, it's a national geothermal summit, and it's going to be held on August 5th and August 6th in Reno, Nevada. wish I could join you guys. Can't this year, but for those who can, you can get out on the GEA website and sign up if you'd like to go. Now, According to a press release that I saw about the summit, Carl, renewable energy development in California is expected to be at the center of many of the conversations. And I'm wondering why it is that California's renewable energy development will dominate the conversation of a national summit. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, the, the basics are California is the big market. I mean, for geothermal, we are today, with today's technology, largely a Western U.S. resource. So you're looking at some of the Gulf states have worked with geothermal, but mostly west of the Mississippi and the far western corridor through Alaska and Hawaii. And when you're looking at the West, California is, is the big is the big market. It's the big user of energy. And on top of that, California has made some real commitments to clean energy. It's been a leader in renewables over many years, and frankly, it is uh, the outstanding leader of the country right now in terms of climate change policy. And so you're going to be having a lot of folks from different parts of California, I noticed, in that press release. Um, you have several representatives who are coming from Imperial County in California. That's not one of the sexy counties, just so you know, in California. You know, we like to talk about San Francisco and L.A. Nobody talks about Imperial County. So what's happening in geothermal energy that makes Imperial County so important? Well, you, know, you don't think of Imperial County until you want to eat sometime in the winter and find out that <laughs> one of the largest food producers is the Imperial Valley. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not scenic, but it's really productive. It's an important part of California. And for geothermal, one of the points, we, we put out a report earlier this year, a status report on geothermal in California, 
that pointed out that of the of the expected the, the, the sort of hydrothermal, the typical traditional resource, more than half of it is still not being utilized in the state of California. And that, and then there's resources beyond that which are undiscovered or more advanced technology. So we're just starting to use it. And the biggest area that has not been developed is, is the Salton Sea. It's probably the largest undeveloped known and identified geothermal resource in California, and it's ready to produce clean, renewable power if all the right conditions are there, and most of that relates to public policies of the state and local governments. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I read a little bit about the Salton Sea Restoration and Renewable Energy Initiative, but um, I'd like for you to go into some detail on that because I am 100% sure that our listeners do not know about this. I mean, we may have a few, um, but most of our listeners probably know nothing about this. So if you could expand upon, you know, what the purpose of this initiative is, who stands to benefit, you know, give us the down and dirty on the Salton Sea Restoration and Renewable Energy Initiative. Well, you know, it's really a complicated story in, 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 in many ways because, uh, particularly to us Easterners, so we don't understand water law in the West and what happens there, but you know, the Salton Sea was created as part of sort of an overflow of a dam back up to the turn of last century, in the early 1900s. But since then, it's become the largest lake in California. And it also is not just a large lake. The Salton Sea contains, uh, has over 400 species of birds that are either migratory or resident within the area. So it's become a large bird habitat area, which is very important for the environment. Well, it's part of a complicated process of settling how much water the area can get, how much of the Colorado River different states get to utilize. Uh, there was an agreement reached, I think it was back in 2003, that slowly led to where we're at today, which is today we're looking at, a, by 2017, the salt sea is going to start shrinking, and it's going to shrink because it won't be able to, then the Imperial Irrigation District won't be allowed to put additional water into the lake, which is what it's been doing. Mm-hmm. As the lake shrinks, there's going to be a lot of things happening. Obviously, it's going, to, it's going to be a problem for the birds who use the sea as well for migratory and breeding purposes, but it's also going to be a problem for humans because as the seabed gets exposed, a lot of the sediment which is there is going to be loose. It could raise up in the dust clouds. It could create toxic conditions. Well, that's the bad news of the, uh, the seabed receding. The good news of the seabed receding is underneath that seabed is geothermal resources. In fact, the, the south end of the Salton Sea right now is sort of the heart of geothermal resources in Southern California. There's several hundred megawatts of power being produced right now. The area that's going to become dry land is expected, according to some leading geologists, to have as much as 1,700 megawatts of geothermal power become usable. And wow. so the idea was to combine geothermal and other renewable resources, solar and perhaps wind, to create a, a renewable energy area that would help utilize some of that seabed, help stabilize that seabed, and also become a source of revenue so that there would be a, the Imperial Irrigation District and Imperial County have really made a commitment to plowing back some of the revenue they would get from this for restoration. And what it does is it, 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 the whole salt and sea uh, situation is really a crisis that is about to happen. It's a crisis which will involve billions of dollars in liabilities and mitigation costs. But if we can turn around and instead of just facing this as a problem, use this as a renewable energy production area 
and use part of the funds that that generates to restore the area, this could become a real sort of win-win, win for clean energy and win for the environment in the Salton Sea, and frankly, a win for public health in the whole Southern California area. Now, when you say public health, do you mean because of the particulate matter that would uh, adversely impact air quality there? Is that kind of what you mean by public health? You're talking about a seabed which has various uh, sedimentary materials like selenium. If they're blown into the air into dust clouds, would create health hazards. Oh, wow. You know, what are we talking about in terms of population? How densely populated is the area that would be impacted by this? Well, the area, obviously, Imperial Valley is not the most densely populated area of the, of the um, Cass State of California, but Imperial and Riverside counties, you know, are you talking about a substantial area right. in terms of the population of California? And it's also unclear how far, I mean, we're sort of getting into the area of unknowns. We've never quite done this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, to see what would happen as these areas, uh, you know, as the, as the dust gets blown up from these areas, what would happen to them? And obviously, the impact on the bird species is going to be significant and cover much, much wider areas. I mean, it'll be in fact the international mm-hmm. in terms of its impacts because of the, many of the species that use the Salton Sea are migratory species going between the U.S., North America, and Central and South America. Right. Now, I'm wondering, and I'm sure you're going to be talking about this at your summit, but you know, geothermal is is different from other forms of renewable energy, of course, in many ways. But in terms of the public-private partnerships that are needed in order to bring this type of electricity to the grid, how does it differ from solar and wind? Maybe it's you know more similar than I realize. But even just from that bus tour when we you know talked for a few hours last year, it sounded like there were some things that made geothermal unique in terms of those public-private partnerships needed. Well, I mean, the thing about geothermal is that it's it's still a very young resource. We're still learning how to how to discover it, how to exploit it. I mean, we're talking about the, the corner of the resource base that we're using in the U.S. today. And around the world, one of the things that has happened is people recognize that there really does need to be, especially the exploration and identification area, support between governments and in and private industry working together. Um, in fact, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory just put out a report in the last, I think, 10 days that talks about how when you look around the world, the one thing we see many countries around the world doing is supporting early exploration mm-hmm. so that you can identify where the resource is. And take back to our story of California, I mean, half of the conventional resource that's estimated to be in the state of California is, is yet undiscovered. It's undiscovered because it's simply too risky and too costly for companies on their own to invest millions of dollars in exploration uh, for, frankly, a very limited return and high risk. But around the world, whether it's East Africa or Indonesia or Japan, areas that are developing, because there's over 80 countries today developing new geothermal projects, you see that public-private partnership is a very important part of identifying the resource sharing some of that early risk, which is actually fairly inexpensive compared to the price of the project. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's, that the United States used to do. Back in the 70s and 80s, the United States government supported exploration and had a very small grant program to help companies do exploration. The Geologic Survey was involved in helping do it. In fact, a lot of the Salt Sea area was identified through that area. But today, going forward, there there is no funding for early exploration, although in Congress... 
there has been some efforts. Uh, Senator Tester and Senator Wyden uh, have proposed reestablishing a sort of a public-private partnership for exploration. Um, there's possibilities in the future it could be restored, but right now we're asking companies to take the risk. And it's a real, it's very problematic because it's long-term projects, high, high risk, um, and frankly, you know, it means high internal financing, which is very difficult to obtain. Yeah, but you know the thing is, I mean, it's it's low risk in other regards. I mean, in terms of uh, you know being a, a source of energy, we don't have to protect with the military. I mean, it's right here at home. It's tucked away <laughs> in our borders. Um, seems like you know there would be in some ways less risk uh, when you're talking about exploration. Are universities involved uh, in the you know in the process of of exploration? I mean, do we have geology students out there doing their internships? You know, on this well, kind know, of we, work? We were back in 2010, 2011, there was a period where we had a couple of workshops. We brought together leading exploration geologists from the government, from industry together, and they talked about the fact that many of the basic indicators, you know, if you're going to explore for geothermal energy, well, the first thing you might do is you might find the different hot springs and do some geochemistry in the hot springs to find out mm-hmm. whether or not the chemistry of the hot springs says it's a deep reservoir, possibly or not. There are a lot of things we simply haven't done, even in states like Nevada. Many of the existing hot springs are not doing that basic chemistry testing done on them for geothermal resources. Hmm. The kind of things which graduate students would be a great summer job for graduate students. Yep. And it sounds like a great thing to do. Right. This workshop, it's a, in fact, the proceedings are, on our, are available on our website. But this group of about, I think we have about 50 or 60 leading experts. We had the Department of Energy, University of Nevada, Reno, Chevron. The whole gang was there. Mm-hmm. These are the leading geologists in the field. They suggested that one of the things which would be really helpful is if the government, the federal government, set a goal and said, we want to see if we can identify where there's 50,000 megawatts of geothermal energy. I mean, that would be, you know, about 5% of our national energy. Yeah. And put together a program to do that, bringing graduate students who could have some summer jobs going on, doing some field testing, develop better technologies with using uh, the type of aerospace technologies we use now for remote sensing, but really put together an effort to do the exploration work and support it. And that was a, their outstanding recommendation from this, this workshop. And I, I totally agree. I, I think that, you know, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll talk about this when we come back. But, uh, you know, if we're waiting around for the government to set a goal on this, that might be a mistake. But, you know, it sounds like just getting the right people and the right funders, even like a big oil company like Chevron with some deep pockets, to uh, to just do it. You know, just pull the trigger and let's do it uh, with or without the government might be the thing to do. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break. But don't go away, folks. We have much, much more on geothermal energy right after this commercial break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad that you could join us. In case you're just tuning in, let me bring you up to speed. Our guest today is Carl Gawell. He's the executive director of the Geothermal Energy Association, GEA. They're getting ready to have a big national summit in Reno, Nevada in early August. Uh, you can check out their website for more details if you want to register and show up. Um, before the break, we were talking about uh, getting maybe some graduate students in geology out there trying to explore and identify uh, some great geothermal sites. Uh, geothermal energy is is an exciting technology. I mean, it's not sexy, but it has a lot of promise as a baseload uh, utility. And I'm wondering, Carl, you know, as you're going to be talking a lot about California and how much energy we need and how much energy we use in this state um, and the implications of bringing more geothermal online here in this state, I'm wondering if the historic drought that we're experiencing in California has changed the discussion at all around geothermal as a baseload alternative to some of the more water-intensive energy sources that we use in California. Actually, one of the things that, that we've discussed here a lot on Go Green Radio is the way that we use a lot of water in some of our energy technologies. Of course, nuclear requires a lot of coolant water. Um, coal requires coolant water as well. Um, and so we, we know that even in the state of California, about 18% of our energy um, you know, it comes from hydroelectricity. And so uh, geothermal, because it uses less water, uh, must be a less water-intensive energy source. Carl, are you there? Do you have some information on that for us? Sure, Joe. Um, geothermal energy uh, can use water, uh, but most of the time when it does, if it has cooling towers, it's not using fresh water or drinking water. It's, in fact, using the condensate from the geothermal fluid is part of a process to cool down the, the power plants. But most of the plants we're building today, in fact, all but one plant has been built in the last few years, has been what's called a binary power plant, which uses a different type of a system, and typically that type of power plant has air cooling instead of water cooling. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, here's, you've got a system which the binary pipeline, the reason they call it binary is there's sort of two pathways. The first is the geothermal fluid coming up, going through a heat exchanger. And on the other side of that heat exchanger, you have a working fluid, and that working fluid is what actually boils and turns the turbine. But because it's relatively low temperature, you can use air cooling with it, which gives you the advantage that you have, frankly, about as close to zero impact on the environment as you can get is a geothermal binary power plant with air cooling. Mm-hmm. That's typically what we're seeing today, although I think that one step further because obviously as you're cooling in the middle of a hot summer day, you're going to lose some power output. So your, your ability for that plant to, to achieve its maximum output is, is, is decreased because of the temperature differential between heating and input output. Forget the physics, it's too complicated, but let's just say you drop some power up. So you're getting companies like NL Green Power at their plant, their binary power plant at Stillwater. They've combined solar photovoltaics with a geothermal power plant because the solar is producing its peak when the geothermal plant with air cooling is having a diminished output. And, Mm. in fact, they're also going to be putting a concentrating solar power system that will be integrated into that power plant as well because they think a hybrid system with geothermal and solar is going to give you the best profile output with the least amount of land impact and the least amount of water and other environmental impacts all the way across the board. So that plant, I think, the photovoltaic part is online last year. The central concentrated solar part, I think, will be coming online in the immediate future. That's pretty exciting. That's a really smart solution. Now, you know, I mean, can geothermal... Uh, really replace some of our baseload uh, utility scale energy needs? I mean, when we're looking at California's drought, uh, you know, any kind of energy plants that require a lot of water are uh, taking away from, you know, utility use or, or uh, residential use of drinking water. Uh, can geothermal play a role in reducing our water impact uh, with, with energy? Well, geothermal plants, I said, typically the Brookhaven National Laboratory has recently did a study looking at water use and, and noted that even though some geothermal plants use geothermal condensate, but across the board in terms of freshwater use, geothermal plants are very low water users or, as I said with binary projects, no zero water users. So the question is not can they reduce the water use. The question is, is there enough resource available? And as I said, just in one area, just the salt sea, there could be a couple thousand megawatts of conventional resource to be developed. And statewide, you've only developed about half of your resource. And in addition, you're sitting next to Nevada and Oregon, who have substantial geothermal resources that are underdeveloped. Um, So, yes, it can help. I don't think it's a silver bullet. Mm -hmm. I don't think geothermal is going to do everything California needs. I mean, we'd love to try. Mm -hmm. But to be realistic, I think you're going to see a lot of renewables coming on board. And I think what you're going to see is a mix that brings together wind, solar, and geothermal to be an integrated mix that will give you greater reliability because, obviously, you know, there's a tremendous amount of solar going forward and wind going forward in the state. I expect you will continue to see more. But what you need is you need to be able to firm up and provide reliability with variable resources. Mm-hmm. One of the things people look at is demand response. Okay, let's get people to turn down their thermostats. Let's get people to stop running their clothes dryers at certain hours. 
Well, that can give you some impact. The other thing they look at is storage, which storage can be expensive and it will be tried. But the other thing that can be part of the system is geothermal because, as I said, these new binary power plants, if they're designed, can also ramp up and down and be farming power or intermittent power like wind and solar. Mm-hmm. But I think as, as the state moves beyond 20% renewables and starts looking at 30%, 40%, 50%, there's going to be a lot of wind and a lot of solar, but there's also going to be a need for firm and flexible power. And geothermal can be both firm and flexible power and can be part of what makes this system reliable as the state moves down the path towards its climate goals. Right. Well, it's no secret that a lot of utilities in the state of California have transitioned some of their baseload plants to natural gas. And that is beginning to really stir up some fervor for increased uh, fracking for natural gas. What is the GEA's position on that? Well, GEA doesn't have a position on fracking per se, but I mean, we we are caught up in controversies about fracking because of some of the advanced technologies that are being looked at, these so-called enhanced geothermal system technologies, would use, techn- would use techniques which fracture rocks at depth. But there's a, there's a good deal of difference between the two. First of all, we're very limited amount of areas this is being done in. Secondly, we have helped develop with the Department of Energy a protocol to make sure that it's done safely and that we learn how to do that safely for future use. Most of the conventional plants, over aren't fracking, so there's not an issue there. But the bigger question with, with gas and fracking, I think, is setting aside the environmental question of can fracking have impacts on local water supplies, which I really don't want to get into for GA doesn't take a position there. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a question about how much gas we really are going to have. Mm-hmm. I know there's a report recently that looked at fracking for the L.A. Basin for, to enhance some of the oil and gas resources from the resources within the L.A. Basin and found that the basin is really not frackable. It's just not conducive to expanding production. So first of all, not every area in the country is going to be able to achieve the kind of production impacts, production increases we've seen like at the the Bakken shale formations. But secondly, when they go in and frack these areas, there's a surge of production for a few years. But there are real questions about how long you can sustain that, whether the the fracks themselves will close up, and you have to go back in and refract the area, and you'll probably get less production the next time you do it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, natural gas and fracking has been a great boom right now. It's really helped the economy. It's really hurt many competitors because it's a low-cost resource. But I'm also, and I think this is where, like going back to the 90s, if you may remember back in the 90s, people had the same dream, that we had endless natural gas, three cents a kilowatt hour power, and we didn't need anything else. And then that turned around, and by the year 2000, California was having power reliability problems because it was betting on long-run one fuel, and that was a mistake. Well, and I think that even though, even if we had as much natural gas as the natural gas folks are saying in all of their commercials on cable news channels, even if that's true, one of their pushes, and we read about it all the time, and Reuters and Bloomberg, they want to sell it overseas. And so the minute, if we do have a glut of natural gas, the minute they start selling it overseas, there's only one reason to do that, because they can get a a larger price. And that's going to drive the domestic price up, even if there is a glut. The minute that that happens, um, you know, this cheap natural gas 
domestic uh, dream that we're living is over. So, you know, I'm a little bit sketch on on some of the, the hype and the PR that I'm seeing about the hope of natural gas. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to be talking much more about geothermal and some of the complexities involved in public policy that requires uh, new transmission lines to get the geothermal from where it is out in the boondocks onto the grid. And Carl's going to explain that to us. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch up to speed. We've got Carl Galwell on the phone with us. He is the executive director of the Geothermal Energy Association, the GEA, and we're talking about geothermal energy, a great, clean, renewable energy source that's largely untapped. I mean, we really have a lot more resource than we're actually using at this point. And we're going to talk about one of the reasons why during this segment. If you look at any map, if you were to Google, where is geothermal in the United States, you might notice that some of the dots that indicate a geothermal uh, site is kind of away from the population centers where a lot of that energy could be used. I mean, you're not going to find, uh, you know, the best geothermal sites right in the middle of big cities like L.A. or, you know, wherever we're using tons of, of electricity and where we need that energy. And so in order to move that electricity from the geothermal sites to the population centers, we need transmission lines. Sometimes they exist. Sometimes they don't. And, and it's not an easy thing to site transmission lines. And Carl, I'd like for you to talk to us about some of the complexities and some of the, the people that need to be involved in order to site uh, new transmission lines in order to bring the, the great potential of geothermal actually to bear on the grid. Joe, it's, 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 a, it's a very complicated area to say the least, but it's one which I kind of find somewhat amusing because one of the things that we look at is we look at how do you get power from where it's produced to where you need it. And often we see people talking about these long transmission lines to bring 
coal from my coal power from Wyoming to California, and I tell people geothermal needs aren't quite as bad. We don't need to go from Wyoming to California. Our problem right now is we can't get power from California to California. <laughs> For example, in the Salton Sea, you've got a large unused resource, but who do they sell power to? They sell their power east. They're going to sell it to Salt River Project in Arizona or other entities east of there because that's where the transmission is available. And there are upgrades. Uh, Imperial Irrigation District is doing some upgrades to be able to utilize more of the Salton Sea. The Sunrise Power Link was supposed to be largely geothermal, but I think it's now more of a mix of wind, solar, and a little bit. Um, but you've got a fairly complex and, frankly, I, I think somewhat Byzantine process of, of utility regulation for um, transmission needs that doesn't match up with the rest of the market. I mean, you've got takes years to build a transmission project, but at the same time, you've got people who are doing power procurement looking at, well, what can we do in the next year or two? Often they're putting out a procurement that's for power two years from now. And the problem is for geothermal, that really creates some mismatches because it might take five or six years to do the work to, to drill and build out a geothermal power plant. So you've got five or six years, you've got power procurements that are two years, and you have a transmission planning process, which is completely disconnected from that. Um, it really creates problems. So we've got within 70 miles of where you need to have it, 2,000 megawatts of power that could replace the San Onofre power, but you can't get it there because you don't have adequate transmission lines. And transmission planning is really something which is, uh, I don't know, they've moved to much more broad regional planning systems, like California is part of the Western Interconnect, which allows California to draw power from wider areas. But you still have this layer where you've got the California Independent System Operator, which regulates all the power system, regulates the transmission lines, but it doesn't own them. They're still owned and have to be built by the individual utilities and have to go through PUC approval. So you've got multiple parties, and I'm not sure one talks to the other. Mm-hmm. To, to the I, outside... I talked to you about a meeting we had a few years ago with folks at Pacific Gas and Electric about getting more connection between Nevada and California. And because it was considered inappropriate, we had to have the transmission planning people in one room and the procurement people in another room because they weren't allowed to be talking with each other because it was inappropriate. But we're like, well, how do you, how do you put this together? Because for geothermal, you've got to put together transmission as part of your overall effort. And if you can't plan transmission and match that up with your procurement, with your buying power, then you're going to buy whatever short-term, quick, and cheap, and you're not looking at where you're going in the long run. Well, and to the outside, you know, civilian, that just seems moronic. I mean, it really is aggravating when, um, you know, what we need in terms of, you know, everyday people looking at what we need for energy and what it would take to get there doesn't seem that hard. You know, I mean, there are transmission lines all over the place. If we just need a few miles from here to there, uh, you know, to, to help us bring renewable energy to bear, it just doesn't seem like it should be that hard. But um, how... Well, we're how in- doing it in, like Band-Aids. We're, we're looking at what do we need here for this little piece, this little piece. But there really isn't a, a sort of a master plan that really fits within in part because of the and the move to deregulation where you've got, you, you created the ISO, you needed to have the ISO because somebody had to pay traffic top on transmission. Mm-hmm. But now you have generation separating from dis- distribution, 
you've got this sort of marketplace approach that's been taking place. But one of the one of the losers, and I think the, the benefit of that has been you've gotten cheaper generation. But one of the losers is I don't think you've had the utility planning. So you've had a utility system which continues to have a transmission projects literally put together like band aids rather than in some comprehensive plan. Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar. That sounds like a lot of you know the uh, government functions that we're we're seeing uh, these well, days. That's but... why you've seen so so little transmission and for electricity. When you look nationwide, if you took a map and showed where there have been gas pipelines built over the past ten years, you'd see there's a huge number of gas pipelines been built to meet the needs of getting that natural gas to California and other areas of the country. But if you compare to that the amount of electric transmission that's been built. You find it's a very small amount of electric transmission that's been built at the same time, despite the fact that most people recognize that for reliability purposes and for for consumer power needs, there needs to be better transmission in a more integrated system with Mm longer-term planning. Well, and isn't that, you know, what we keep hearing about smart grid this and smart grid that, um, but we're just not seeing it, you know, move very quickly at all. Now, in terms of the... uh, you know, we see a lot of advertisements and commercials, you know, put on by big oil and gas. They spend a lot of money on TV commercials to tell us about how clean they are and how many jobs they create. Let's talk about geothermal um, and compare apples and apples. Um, let's talk about the kind of jobs that are created in the geothermal sector. Um, what kind of jobs are these and how long do they last? And compare that to maybe some of the jobs that uh, we're seeing in the oil and gas industry. Well, the, the geothermal industry is, is a major employer, let's put it that way. And the way I tell people to think about geothermal is if they put together, if you look at it compared to an oil field or a gas plant, Somewhere in the West, you've got a natural gas production field where you've got the wells drilled, wells drilled that are producing the gas. Mm-hmm. They're feeding that into a pipeline, which might bring it 1,000 miles to the power plant. And then you've got a power plant where you've got people sitting in the power plant producing power with it and meeting the needs of the, you know, the, the ISO in terms of their output. And with the geothermal project, you basically put all of those in one, one spot. You've got the well field. You've got the transmission system and you've got the, the power plant all on one spot, so you've got a significant amount of jobs. For a 100-megawatt plant, typically you'd have around 170 permanent jobs created. Many of them would be jobs which types of skills that don't require PhDs, but you could get trained at at a community college or, or in other areas. And then there would be even more. There'd be probably three times as many or four times as many construction and manufacturing jobs that would have to build that plant and build the parts that go into it. So when you when you look at compare the natural gas plant, for example, and a geothermal plant, you see that there's many more jobs, both permanent jobs and temporary jobs, because well, you're 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 substituting capital for for fuel when you build a renewable power plant. So capital means jobs, means someone has to build something. And that's what you, you get long-term jobs. And in areas like, for example, in the Imperial Valley, you're talking about one of the highest unemployment rate areas in the state. Mm-hmm. You'd be bringing long-term permanent jobs plus construction jobs. And they find that pretty attractive. 
I'll bet they do. And, uh, and, and it's a, a little bit of a cleaner, a more domestic operation as well. I mean, um, when we talk about, you know, some of the jobs that uh, being created and everybody wants to talk about how low unemployment is in North Dakota. But when you talk to the people who, you know, live in these little small towns who then get deluged by the oil and gas, you know, industry and what that does to their little towns. It's um, not always a, a pleasant story that they tell about, you know, what happens when that kind of quote unquote opportunity comes knocking. One of the things that, of course, over the summer, we always pay attention to gasoline prices because people want to hop in the car and go on a vacation, travel around more in the summertime. And, and we're always very aware of the fluctuation in the price of oil and gas. Uh, of course, wintertime, we're aware of the, the price of natural gas because we heat our homes a lot of times with natural gas. Does the power price, is that, that cost of geothermal power fluctuate like oil and gas? Is, it, is there a fluctuation involved? Well, there are geothermal projects typically sell their power under long-term power contracts. So, what you're seeing is a anywhere from a 10 to a 30-year contract at a fixed price. Now, you can negotiate a contract which might have a ramp up or a ramp down, but it's still going to be fixed. You're going to know what it is up front. And so what happens is we know everybody's – we all watch the energy business, whether we like to or not, because we fill up our cars at the corner with our gasoline, and we see, well, what's the price today? Is it $2 or $5? Mm-hmm. And when it's $5, you, you cry as you fill your gas tank. <laughs> yeah. But the fact is you've got a lot of volatility in the market. And the one thing you get with renewables and geothermal in particular is long-term stable pricing. So you can get a price today that we can guarantee for 10 or 20 years. That's something you're not going to find with fossil fuels or gas or coal, for that matter, long-term contracts, because they, they, can't, they have to adjust for the volatility of fuel prices, which can't, simply can't be predicted. And what you can predict about them, is that they're going to be volatile, they're going to be like a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. So you might have a cheap price today, but if you build a power system that relies upon power that is highly volatile, watch out for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, and with geothermal energy um, and so many of the renewable energies, which by definition are domestic, you know, the sun, the wind, we're capturing that energy right here at home. We don't have to worry about things like, you know, is the Suez Canal in jeopardy of being closed? I mean, is there conflict in the Middle East um, that will, you know, affect our supply? The supply is right here at home and, and we can count on that. So that's one of the great things about all renewable energy, but certainly geothermal as well. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, I want to talk about a few more things that have to do with your summit and uh, with the international market around geothermal. So don't go away, folks. We've got more with Carl Gawell right after this commercial break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? 
Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Sylvata alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, we're talking about geothermal. And we have Carl Galwell, who's the executive director of the GEA, the Geothermal Energy Association, on with us today. Carl, I was looking at your website. Um, there's so much great information on your website. But um, under your, the priority section of your website, I read about um, – the fact that geothermal has an international aspect of it that, honestly, I just don't understand. So I'd like for you to explain this. Uh, here's what I read on your website. It says, federal efforts to promote international renewable market development and U.S. exports should continue to recognize that the U.S. geothermal firms operate in a very competitive global market. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't get it. Help us understand how that is so. Well, even though we're a small industry, we're a highly technical industry, and, and there's a lot of countries who are trying to develop geothermal resources today. We've seen a real boom, for example. Uh, in the international market uh, three years ago, we were able to identify about 25, 26 countries looking at building new power, power, power plants. Today, there's over 80 countries moving forward with new power plants. So it's almost tripled just in the last three years. And a lot of those projects involve U.S. firms. I mean, for, I was just on, just met the other day with the trade, U.S. Trade and Development Agency, who's been engaging in Turkey, because there's been a number of U.S. firms, turbine air systems, power engineers, helping Turkey build geothermal power plants from its resources. We've also worked with USAID in East Africa. East Africa has a huge rift system. You know, people talk about California's geothermal resources with the geysers and the Salton Sea. Well, you've got this huge rift because you're on a plate boundary. Well, East Africa has a tremendous geothermal rift system with resources that are largely untapped that run all the way up and down the, the spine of east of Eastern Africa. And so those are just examples of areas where we're seeing new development in these markets, and U.S. firms are actively involved in them uh, doing all kinds of service work, building plants, building equipment, doing engineering, helping with geologic work. Uh, in fact, it's one of the big problems I have trying to contact many of my companies is they travel a lot more these days as the world market becomes more and more a target of what they're doing. As the U.S. market moves, the U.S. market's moving forward, but it's not moving forward anywhere near as fast as the world market is today. Mm-hmm. So what do U.S. geothermal firms need from the U.S. government in order to keep doing that work? I mean, what what's their issue? Well, much of the work that's being done around the world is being done with governmental support, particularly the multilateral banks, the Eastern European Investment Bank, the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation. 
So it's, it's you, they're sponsoring a lot of the early work towards exploration and resource development to remove some of the risk, and also because they want to see the benefits of clean, reliable power for people in these developing countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very complicated, but it, it, frankly, it's very difficult to work in these markets if you don't have effective support from your government. Um, and I'll say our government has really stepped up to the plate. Uh, one of the things that's probably not mentioned a lot but the Obama administration has been very upfront for the past several years trying to promote U.S. involvement in renewable export markets because it correctly saw that renewable markets around the world are going to be the growing and are the growing energy markets. Mm-hmm. And we want to help U.S. firms connect with the people they need to make do business with around the world in our trade system. The you know, OPEC, the Export-Import Bank, all support U.S. firms as they engage in these world markets and bring back to the U.S., money, jobs, and resources from the work they do around the world. You know, besides your summit, and I know, you know, I want to give you a chance to tell people more about the summit and encourage them to participate in whatever way you'd like for them to, but besides the annual summit that you have, how does the GEA work to educate public policymakers about issues related to geothermal? I mean, are you concentrating on mostly federal policymakers, state, local? I mean, how do you do your work um, to influence policymakers? Well, the first thing you do is you make sure that people know what you're doing. I mean, you've got to have, for example, one of the things that when we started about 10 years ago, we didn't even have a newsletter. There was no one place you could go and get reliable, constant information about geothermal energy. We now put out a weekly newsletter that people can sign up for. It's free of cost. It keeps you up to date on what's happening in the industry, what's happening in policies that affect it, et cetera. We also do a lot of technical reports and, and industry reports, which otherwise simply would not be done. People often overlooked geothermal simply because you couldn't find the information. Yeah. You would want to know, well, what's happening with wind? What's happening with solar? And you would be able to find it fairly quickly, but geothermal is missing. So as you mentioned, our website, geo-energy.org, there's a tremendous amount of resources on it for people with reports, data, and information about the industry and its technology and its members, and it's all available free of charge. Mm-hmm. And that's very deliberate, and we talked early with my board when we started this, should we be charging for this? They said, no, we're the, as you pointed out at the beginning of the show, the unknown renewable, we need to be better now, and we need to put together the information. And, you know, we could sit back and say, why aren't people talking more about us? Or we could move forward and do something about it. And we right. decided the latter part was to do something about it, to put together the information and get the message out, because once people know about geothermal, they're pretty intrigued by it. Once policymakers realize, in East Africa, I met with the, the head of the Kenyan bank and their ambassador here, um, and early on before they, they started the current initiatives, and explained to them, here's what geothermal could do for your country. It gives you a resource which doesn't get exploited or taken away, but stays there builds value, helps your economy, gives you jobs, gives you clean energy, and they got interested once they knew what was possible. So that's a lot of what we do is a lot of very basic work to make sure that people understand what's possible and how geothermal fits in. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I found so amazing about the geothermal plants that I saw when I was on the, the bus with you uh, last year at your summit was, you know, how stable and and low maintenance the plants are. I mean, sometimes when I look at advanced technology, I get really excited about solar. I get really excited about wind. But then, you know, I think about the maintenance involved. I think about the parts and pieces involved. Geothermal plants are incredibly 
simple and and solid um and it's one of those technologies that you build the plant and and it really seems like <laughs> you know you don't need a lot of fancy stuff to make it work uh, maybe i missed life, something I mean, the geysers have been operating more than 50 years the Lotterello power plants in italy over 100 years I mean, they have long lives, and that's one of the reasons why geothermal scores really well when the, when the government does the analysis, or the state government or the federal government looks at what's called levelized cost, which is the mm-hmm. long-term levelized cost of a product. Geothermal tends to be one of the top scores because when you look at it over a longer period of time, it gives you a long-term stable price and it's a good bargain. Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, there's just not a lot that can be broken. There's not a lot of parts and pieces we have to acquire from overseas. There's no rare earth minerals involved, uh, anything we have to fight for or defend or, you know, leverage for. It's pretty amazing in that respect. I want to give you a minute or two to uh, talk about your summit. Give us the commercial. Tell us where to find out more. What's going to be happening besides talking about the Salton Sea and California? What else are you guys going to be discussing? Well, if, you, if you're interested in geothermal energy and where the market is today and what's happening with it in the West, particularly Oregon, Nevada, and California, then you want to be at the U.S. Geothermal Summit coming up in August. It'll be in Reno, Nevada, and it'll be August 4th through 6th. Uh, actually, the session opens on Tuesday the 5th, so the 5th and the 6th at the Grand Sierra Resort in, in Reno. And we're, we're bringing together all the different players. You'll see the industry leaders there talking about what they're doing, We'll be giving out awards for the latest technology improvements in the field and different honors that we give. Uh, we'll be having people coming in from California, the PUC, the Energy Commission, talking about where, where they're standing with a program specifically on the Salton Sea Restoration Initiative and where it's moving forward with. We'll be talking about Oregon, Nevada as well, what's happening with the laws and policies there, and we'll have a panel of leading people talking about what the federal government is or, frankly, is not doing these days to help energy move forward. But it's a policy dialogue, and you'll find the players. We, and when you deal with energy policy, you have to deal with both state and federal because states regulate power the power system. And mm-hmm. we'll be bringing together the different states that are key leaders, California, Oregon, Nevada, some of the other western states with industry leaders, to have a dialogue about how we work together in the years going forward. Have you joined well, in the dialogue with us? Well, and tell us where we can find registration information. Where is that located? It's on our website, which is on the World Wide Web at geo-energy.org. Geo-energy.org. That's where you can find out more information. And I guarantee you, folks, you know, it may sound like, wow, we're sitting around talking about policy, but this stuff is exciting. I was there last year. I had a ton of fun. It wasn't exactly a party bus, but we made it a party bus going around on tours of geo plants, and that was a lot of fun. And talking about these issues um, brings up, uh, you know, some of the, the best conversations I've had in a long time. So I would highly encourage folks to get on board. Go to that summit if you can, if you're anywhere near Reno. Carl, thanks for joining us. Thanks for talking about geothermal with us. It's an exciting technology. I wish you all the best with your summit. Folks, we're going to be here same place, same time with more Go Green Radio next week. Until then, have an awesome week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. 